This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy Brown and I'm sitting with Tony Crosdale. And we have a special guest today, Lori Hayes. Lori Hayes. And we'll come back to Lori for in a, in a sec to hear more about what she does. This is the first episode we're recording since we've actually been up online. So iTunes, Stitcher, the website. So if you're listening to this, we should have mentioned this earlier episodes, but please, if you like the ep- if you like what you're listening to, like us on Stitcher, like us on iTunes, throw some comments up there, and write us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com so we can get your feedback, learn how to improve it, give us ideas for stories. Oh, well, we did get uh, uh, some feedback. No, this is legitimate feedback. Oh, okay. Not, not made up <laughs> feedback. Not that we've done that in the past. It's all legit. Yeah, so Robin from Tacony, he works for the Tukuri Tacony Frankfurt Watershed, Watershed Partnership. Or, yes. Yeah, he, um, he's wow, a, that was good because yeah, I fumbled he, that a he's a, great, uh, uh, he's, he's a great personality uh, and a person that I, I collaborate with occasionally. Um, we do similar things in different parts of the city. Anyway, so he, he wrote me, he wrote us and said, hey, we should, we should do something about urban beavers. And, his, oh. and the park that he works in does have beavers, and uh, so does Cops Creek, and actually I think every park in Philly. And at one point in Philly, and northeast Philly, in Pennypack Park, which is the park near where I grew up, we actually had an incident of a rabid beaver attacking a fisherman. That's a wildlife interaction right there. Yeah. I actually wrote an article about beavers for grid, I think like a year and a half ago, or two years ago, close to that. Um, there you, go. there you go. I love grid. We love grid too. I love grid, even though I don't. I, I stopped writing for it so I could focus on this. Yeah, I think they were even spotted a little north of the fish ladder. Uh, also in the Schuylkill. Yeah, not there you too go. Long I would ago. think that they, at this point, I don't think they're every. I think they're they're, they're, at, they're at the Hines. I've seen them and seen their sign in Pennypack. I've seen them requesting. I've seen their sign in Taconi. I've seen their sign and them all over Hines. Lori, hi. <laughs> I actually I feel embarrassed that I don't actually know what your official job is because I see you all the time at public nature events. I know you work. I'm always. I'm, we're gonna keep messing this up. I'm gonna keep saying Fairmont Park, even though Fairmont Park as a system got merged into Philadelphia's recreation department. So now we have a parks and recreation department. Dates back to about 1878 to protect the water. And the art museum sits on what was Fair Mount, right. and that's where it all began. And then there's the chain of houses on both sides of the river, the charms of the Fairmount Park system. But uh, we're almost two thousand. I'm sorry, ten thousand acres of parkland. Don't sell yourself short. I know. <laughs> and your title is? I am an operations district manager. Formerly just a park district manager, but now operations includes recreation facilities and anything involving parks and rec. Keeping it going, keeping it running, clean, safe, and ready to use. 
I met Lori, and I don't know if she's just being polite, but she always chuckles when I remind her of this, at an event at Cobbs Creek where she was talking about tree identification. I think it might not have, it might have been early spring or something, so the trees weren't leafed out. And she was saying, when you're trying to identify a tree, look up, look down, look all around. She's pointing at me, smiling at <laughs> And it's, it's something that, I will be honest, has actually come in handy when I've been sitting there in the winter and being like, what kind? It, it, it echoes in my head, and I don't go on a search around the tree to see what leaves are on the ground. Um, and see if there's like still one like little leaf dangling from a branch somewhere. I'm trying to figure it out. Well, first time I met Lori, I, was, I used to work at the Costco Environmental Center, and there's a special event, and I believe I was like, mulching or doing something physical and I was like on the ground and Lori comes up and introduces herself to me and I tell her my name I'm like I'm, I'm you know, Tony Crowsdale she's like Crowsdale are you Clyde's son and <laughs> so, and so Lori knows my father from when he was pre- president of the Friends of the Penny Pack absolutely I actually met your dad in about 1985 I had a provisional appointment at the Penny Pack Environmental Education Center and they needed someone to keep the place open and that was me and I was a grounds maintenance worker I went up there and fulfilled the duties and got recognition by the mayor back then Wilson good and I've been into this thing ever since <laughs> I'm a self-made nature specialist so for this episode, we're going to hear from another, you know, another dedicated public servant for nature, who I ran into in yet another grid article. One article about the Fairmount Fishway, and then I'd also talked to Joe for an article about carp, which just happened to be the synanthropic organism of the episode. And, you know, everybody knows I'm into reptiles and amphibians, so I'll keep an eye out for like snapping turtles and stuff. And so a lot of times if you're like at a pond in the park or in the river, I've actually been in the Schuylkill River like snorkeling and seen some pretty f- huge carp. Lori's chuckling at that. And the large animal I'm expecting to see in the shallows is like a turtle. And I get faked out by these carp. Um, and they drive me nuts. And I decided I'll, I'll, I'll learn more about them or an article about them. So carp, they have an interesting history in that they are... Uh, a Central Asian fish, and then they were they were kept in Roman times as a fish for aquaculture. So people breeding them intentionally just as food because they're good eating, and they spread all over Europe by the Romans. And U.S. Fish Commission intentionally introduced them all over the United States uh, as a food species for people to catch to eat. They've done really well. You know, female carp will lay something like or spawn something like th- like several hundred thousand, 300,000 eggs in a shot. They're considered by the IUCN Invasive Species Specialist Group as one of the world's 100 worst invasive species. They're really hard to get rid of. Um, And some of these things you say, okay, they're benign. They live in like human altered landscapes and it's not that big a deal. These are considered bad because they they feed by rooting around in in mud and weeds. And so they'll rip up aquatic vegetation that you might want to try to have established in the pond that you're trying to manage to be more natural. On top of that, in Philadelphia at least, and I bet in other urban areas, they're not edible because they spend so much time rooting around the sediments that they that even though they're not top of the food chain, they still accumulate enough pesticides or metals and other stuff that you can't you shouldn't even eat them. It also is sometimes cultural. Yeah. Certain people will have the fish head stew, maybe people from the Caribbean and such, um, they will have a carp. Uh, and, and they will enjoy it. Uh, they make fish cakes out of the meat 
and maybe don't like pan fry it or bake it like a cod or anything. But yes, I've seen them. But while I was chuckling earlier, Hurricane Floyd came through and the Schuylkill came over its banks. And all kind of car... They were lying on the Kelly Drive near Midvale Avenue. So for background, this is a four-lane road that kind of runs along the river. Yes. And they were out in the road just flopping around because the river had crested and come over uh, the walls there. And it... The car. We tried to rescue and throw them back. No, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the time, you know, you know, we had to clean the roadway. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, they did a dredging uh, over at the Concourse Lake. Oh yeah, yeah. In the Centennial Lake area, and there were some giants in there. You may not believe it, but uh, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it because I've spotted some of them rooting around in there. Synanthropic organism. Alright, so with that, why don't we start listening to Joe. Joe Perillo, an aquatic biologist for Philadelphia Water Department, and where we do water quality monitoring in all the streams and rivers of Philadelphia, monitor all the biological life, uh, not just fish, but also aquatic insects, algae. We basically characterize the health of our watersheds based on the aquatic life. The, the, the principle behind some of that is when you take a water sample, you're basically taking a snapshot. That's one second of what that water body is like. When you start looking at the aquatic life, you know, the, the algae you're talking about, you're assimilating days worth of information. Uh, you move up to higher forms such as invertebrates, they, their life cycle is, is months. So now you're starting to take all that environmental information, and then as you go to fish, you're talking about years. So instead of just grabbing that one snapshot of that one second what the water's like, by starting to look at the aquatic life, you're getting longer-term pictures of the health of the rivers and specifically what's impacting the health, what's keeping it from being healthier or being impaired or polluted. Um, is it stormwater? Is it you know, sewer overflows, is it habitat degradation, sedimentation. So that's what we're, one of our main objectives. And, and then also monitoring Fairmount Fishway. Uh, since the city of Philadelphia owns Fairmount Dam, uh, we're responsible for providing passage of fish around that dam. It's a physical barrier to migrating fishes for, you know, for millions of years, uh, uh, fish were able to freely ascend the Schuylkill from, this, from basically sea level up to the mountains. And then the Industrial Revolution was you know, largely built on the, on the back of, of, of Philadelphia and you know, made, us a, made us a world power and, and, and won us independence, but it came at a cost uh, for the aquatic life, mm-hmm. both by building of dams, by silting, choking the river with coal silt. So we're just now starting to recover from you know, events that happened 200 years ago, and we're starting to see that, 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 that resurgence as water quality is improving, we're opening up habitat now, and that's one of the big things that, 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 that the fishway does is open up river miles of habitat to fish. But how did you get into this? How did I get into it? That's yeah. what you're after. Well, we're both. Yeah, um, I think just as a kid, I fished all the creeks in Philadelphia growing up um, and really had that, that strong connection. Uh, I could, you know, walk to the Schuylkill. I could walk to the Wissahickon. So, you know, spent a lot of time. So you in Roxboro. Roxboro. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. I'm from Mayfair and Wissanoming, so. Okay. I would bike to Pennypack or bike to the ri- river. The Delaware. To catch my, di- yeah, to catch my dinky stripers. Yeah. Or, or sunfish. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, I think that that was really a, a lot of the start. 
Well, I worked for Fairmount Park for a while as, as a park ranger as well when I was in, in the summers coming home from college and that kind of like, you know, led into uh, working with the city. I was at the Academy of Natural Sciences for a little while, um, right, out of, right out of school. I, I was actually into um, aquaculture quite a bit and I kind of learned, learned very quickly that that's not where I necessarily wanted to be. And then kind of coming back and uh, was at PADEP for, for a little bit doing kind of a solid waste inspections. The position at the academy opened up. Yeah. And then actually when I was at the academy, we were traveling all over the country doing fish work. I uh, really enjoyed it. And the water department was just pretty much starting up a biomonitoring program. Back in my mind, I said, hey, uh, why don't I come over and start up the whole program for you guys? And, you know, we can we'll build the program and kind of institutionalize this type of work. That's really and, neat. And we were able to do that. I don't... That's awesome. So, so I'll ask you, maybe this is going to come up with like a dumb question, but like, why do you like fish? I mean, I know why, I mean, it's like asking Tony why you like birds or why I like turtles, but like, why, what is it about, what it strikes you? Yeah, how about that? Because it seems like a unifying theme. Like you're catching fish when you're a kid, you're researching them, you're into aquaculture, which is a fish topic, but we are talking earlier before we started taping, and you're really into fishing. Like, you love fishing. Yeah, that's like when I'm I've not at work, that's what I pretty much... Right, I yeah, talked to you yeah. about the shad, and like, I remember this when we were... So this is back when I wrote an article with uh, interviewing Joe about the fishway and shad, and I remember when we were sitting there, and there was like a gizzard shad comes up, and you're like, mm -hmm. and then like the American shad came up, and you got really passionate about like the American shad. Like, like Tony gets passionate about, I don't know, about a harpy eagle, you know, or like, or I get passionate about a spotted turtle or something like that, you know, and it really seemed to grab you. Like, what I, is I it get a, excited about things a lot less dramatic than harpy eagles. I know, but I was trying to... Think, <laughs> I, was, I saw... <laughs> the, the, was the Swainson's... The sw well, I mean... The like, that you guys saw? Yeah, or? but like, yeah, like if, if, it's contextual, if, like... When I'm down by the you know Delaware River in a little by Walmart, if I see a black on night heron there, which is a bird I take for granted in, in other places in there the region, right. then I'll, I'll still flip out because it's so in Philly. Tony you know? flips out over herons. I flip out over a lot of turtles. Like Joe, you flip out over shad. Like yeah, so, what is it about yeah. this, what is it about them that grabs you? I think um, uh, for for shad especially is just how how much they meant to our like our cultural history in Philadelphia. They shaped a lot of what the city was early on. In, um, am I correct that that's what uh, Washington fed his troops on in the Valley Forge in the winter? Was it was a dried shad? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there that story goes multiple multiple ways. Is from the you know the shad kind of saved the troops at Valley Forge, and I think it's more about the salted shad based on based on the timing. Otherwise, it was more like growing up in the city, kind of your direct contact with wildlife. Like you know, we didn't really hunt. You know, just because where you were, you know, and so it was like that was something that you could do for, like, say, for for free, you know, like in, in, in the summertime when it's like, you know, a lot of kids were going to camps and going here and down the shore. It was like kind of just be stuck trying to figure out what to do. And, and we had the creek so close to us that that's what, what we did. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, similar for me, growing up near Pennypack, you know, in the river. But so for our listeners who aren't, you know, Obviously, we're fairly Philly-centric because we're based here, but a lot of people don't know. Um, so say Philadelphia has two major rivers. Good One point. is the Delaware, which is a massive river, and then the other river is much smaller, but still pretty significant. If it was out west, it would be a big river. Is the Schuylkill. Then Philly also has a series of watershed parks, and we have Percussing Creek, Pennypack Creek, which is a, a massive uh, urban park, 
and it's you know basically a stream. It's corridor. no Wissahickon, but yeah, I, I think Pennyback <laughs> is superior <laughs> park. And then it's the Wissahickon, and I'm going to lose out here because because you grew up on Roxburgh. I grew up yeah. next to Pennyback, and, and so Pennyback and Wissahickon are the two biggest creeks in the city, and they have the nicest parks um, yeah. surrounding them. And then we also have. Um, Tookany slash Tacony slash Frankfurt Creek, which is a whole other thing, and half of it's underground. Uh, and then the western border of Philadelphia is Cobbs Creek. Near and dear to Tony in my hearts. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, the Delaware is it's the largest undammed river east of the Mississippi. So when we, you know, that, that, that's very, to me, that, 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 that's the reason why the Delaware is the way it is. I, to me, I always think it was, it was a badge of pride. I go out west, and my friends in Portland or whatever were fishing on the river there, and and like I'm like your river's dammed multiple times. My river's not. <laughs> Delaware's yeah, yeah, not. You know. Yeah. And yeah. in ter- context of this urban podcast or wildlife podcast, it's you know a lot of people think like the West is like super pristine, um, and the East is the more built up. But in some places, if you look at the watersheds, the East has uh, less. It may, it may be more development, but le- but there's been less impact on the on dam. We just wise, don't have you know, serious dams like the Columbia or something. Like right. That. Yeah. And that's that's a real good point, because I, I I went out I went out to Alaska for a conference. I was they asked me to present on some of my research that we were doing on flathead catfish invasives in the Schuylkill, and I'm thinking I can't wait to get out there to fish pristine, not crowded. You know, most of the spots I went to it was combat fishing. I flew what seven thousand miles. I don't know how far Alaska is, but you know. You fly to the other side of the country, you're, you know, you get in a car, you drive a couple thousand miles, and you get in this river, and you're shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder uh, fishermen. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it's combat fishing. And yeah. I'm like, you know, people that I'm with are like, oh, this sucks. I'm like, I grew up with this. Like, whiskey on opening day is, is, yeah. is combat fishing. I'm, I, that's in my element. I can, like, we can wear down. Like, my brother and I, it's a badge of pride. When we get into spots, we, we do salmon and steelhead fishing in the Great Lakes. We go up to, you know... Northwestern New York, you know, and it's like, and it's 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 shoulder to shoulder, and you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. so it turns some guys off. We'll leave. We'll see all these guys coming. It's the best spot in the river. Like I'll I'll wear you out and I'll fish. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some guys that they completely turns them off. But. So you you mentioned something. What's up with the flathead catfish? I know I'm looking at a sticker over here to the right about stop the spread of the flathead catfish. I remember you pulled one of those out of the the fishway that one time I saw it. Yeah, we've kind of lost that fight. Um, you know, the flathead catfish are native to the Mississippi and Ohio River drainage. Are they one, they're one of the noodling catfish, right? That's exactly right. Those are the ones you see on the TV shows when they're, yeah, noodling for catfish. That's, that's the flathead. They're one of the largest species of catfish in, in, in North America. The, the big difference is they're a top predator. They're not just a scavenger or they're not just bottom-feeding omnivore that's going to eat anything. They're primarily eating... Other catfish, sunfish, we've, we've seen a pretty big impact on the, the, the sunfish community uh, with the increased abundance of flathead catfish. So okay. early on, we were trying to remove them and control their numbers. Once we started seeing multiple age classes and reproduction and recruitment, you know, and, and we were getting, I don't know, 600 pounds of them out of the fish ladder during a cleanup, like, we, where am I getting rid of all these bodies, basically? We were calling Fish Commission, you can't release them. Okay, I can't release them, but it, uh, you know, where am I getting rid of these? And you can't eat them because the, they accumulate exactly. heavy metals and stuff. The contaminants, we had DEP do some testing on them because we were going to give them the fill abundance. 
Yeah. Uh, and and they're hot. They have they're high in metals, mercuries, PCBs. You know, they're, they're pretty much have it. They have it all. Jeez. And you can't feed. You know, you wouldn't even really want to put it on, say, like a vegetable garden, because you're basically doing the same thing. You're importing right. those contaminants. Oh, man. So so the the outlet of what you do with these is is almost like is, is very limited. Fish toxic waste. And we became known at like the the dumps in Philly, like because you'd go with trash can or trash bags of 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 catfish with blood dripping out and you're hauling them in and little by little we were getting banned they were like knowing us they would say hey we don't want you dumping all this <laughs> so i get on the phone with fishkin what do you want us to do we don't have anything we'll, we'll, we'll put them in a hole that's what we do and i'm like i'm gonna need a backhoe to like dig a hole like, i know i'm italian but i'm not in the business of disposing bodies here you know but that was uh so now we the only time we really hammer them heavy in the fish way when the herring and shatter running um, there's almost like a gauntlet where sometimes we see areas where there's 1,200 herring, and then up by the window there might be three. And in between that area, there's a huge biomass of flathead catfish. So if we're in that, uh, in, in that so, instance so when the herring are running thick and yeah. the flatheads are in there, just opportunistically ambushing. We're just sitting there sucking them up as they come through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they, and to describe the fish way, it's like a, a series of, of, what do you say, closet size compartments or a little bigger than that yeah like a cubicle size i mean like almost, cubicle size compartments yeah, yeah. That, that sort of are, are each one's a little higher than the next and so the fish can swim into each compartment chill for a minute and then go to the next level up and so then if you could think of like the, the catfish parking themselves in one of those compartments and just like taking all the smaller fish as they come through yeah that's the, what you're talking the about big yeah. bottleneck the river goes from a wide open you know massive river to basically like shoved into almost like a closet or a cubicle yeah and that's how they get up there they, and they, 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 they take advantage of that how'd yeah. they get into the system two ways there was uh, some stock contamination so uh some of the reservoirs further up in the schuylkill watershed they stock channel catfish and a lot of these catfish oh. come from hatcheries in the Midwest where they're also doing bullheads, channels, And they mix up the heads. order? And just poor quality control. I yeah. mean, when, when you're buying them like this, you're buying tens of thousands of, like of, of fingerling. Yeah. You know, so they, they, they're stock contamination. There's not good QA. Wow, I never get, even thought about and, that. And you get a couple yeah. in the mix. And then there was angler introduction. We had specific instances, anglers going, you know, because in, in Western PA you have the Allegheny and the Ohio, so they're native in Western PA. Yeah. And not too far away, you know, they are natives. You know, fishermen just move them into, uh, like, Springton Reservoir in Delaware, like these drinking water reservoirs, you know, just to have their own little private population. And they have, and, and their uh, minds, they have no idea, probably. And that's kind of like the snakehead, too. I'm going to jump to snakeheads, but that's, you know, the northern snakehead is kind of like a, looks like a python with fins. Yeah. And, and they can go on land for a decent amount of time, you know, if it's wet and rainy, they could last out for, for days. That was down at the uh, FDR, down by the stadiums. There's the ponds down there. They're a favored food item for you know certain Asian populations. And buying an adult snakehead at, at the market might run you 17, 18 bucks when you can buy them as a fry for pennies a piece. Put them in the lakes. Now you have your own kind of your own private little fish farm that you've just established. And that yeah. system down there that is there is some um, opening to the Delaware, and right, it's a tidal system that yeah, yeah. yeah that connects to the Delaware at the Navy Yard. And the Schuylkill's right there, and too. last year, we saw the numbers numbers exploded of flat of snakeheads. We went from getting kind of like ones and twos throughout the season to, like, one time out, we had, uh, 
don't know, 27 or 28, and then at the next time they dominated the biomass of our catch. So when we kind of weigh up everything, there were more snakeheads. Wait, where is this exactly? In, in, in the Schuylkill below the Fairmount Dam. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Not, not in 14 uh, last year. In, in, and are in, they in as, 13. have you tested them to see if they are as toxic as the... It's a good, no, we haven't. But they're top of the food chain fish, so presumably they'd be... Probably, if they're in, yeah, especially since they're in our system all year round, unlike a striped bass or a shad that kind of spends most of its life in the ocean, yeah, comes, back, comes back here to spawn, I, I eat those out of the river. What's the, um, the, I believe it's the South American bottom feeding of Pleku? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I pulled a shopping cart out of Cobbs Creek um, at Riley Environmental Center, and there was one flopping around in the shopping cart. I assume they, can't, they can handle winter? Didn't even think about it, and I and I let it back because I, I was I was like I, w- I didn't have a container with me, you know. I, if I if I caught a fish in the chopper car, I would just let it go. But it, it, it occurred to me I'd find some weird and alien fish, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I just like didn't know what to do, and I let it back in. And then I thought about it, I was like I probably should have killed it or taken it out of there. But do you think do you think that would just die, or is it possible that there's populations of them persisting in our creeks? I, I think the winter time would, 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 would kill them. They're, they're a tropical fish. And I, yeah. yeah. I even have problems like I, at, at home I have a, a native fish, say a 75 gallon aquarium but it, it's in my basement and I, and I refuse to heat it because they're all just native stream fishes and, and the plecos just you know when the water temperature really drops and, okay. you know, and, and especially like last winter where yeah. we had ice like we did they're not they're not making it through well good <laughs> I guess it, was just, it was pretty big so i guess someone just got too big for the tank and they threw yeah you know, well, well i'm glad to hear it'll be dead soon <laughs> we, we, we see that at these we see we see cichlids you know uh piranhas you see a lot of things these crazy koi carp that people they get too big for their tank for their pond we yeah. run into alligators that way too Oh, how uh, often do you see alligators? Every couple of years. Okay. And when we typically see them is, you know, we're most of the way through November, temperature's starting to change. This would be the time of year where they start dipping out. When the temperature drops, they get, like, drunk, and they just yeah. they don't do well with it. And you get to where you can observe them. They'll be near an outfall. They'll come near an outfall where there's a little bit more warmth because there's some, you know, either stormwater runoff, some sewage seeping in, and, yeah. and just that little bit of extra temperature a little bit of extra heat crawls them in and then you're kind of if you're at an outfall you're probably near a street and someone can spot you and then a lot of times we're the ones we get the calls hey you guys want to no i don't really want to mess with that alligator (laughs) you know we've we've kind of the the, the issue is like where do you if i get it now where am i taking it the zoo typically doesn't want them this is an international podcast. Pennsylvania is about five hundred miles Good north. Good point. <laughs> five hundred miles north of the of the most northerly of the northernmost alligators. I think they might it. make it up to like what the Virginia border. Yeah, just and south then, of Virginia border. So and, that, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, so we're, maybe we're way a, out of range. Maybe yeah. in, in another decade, another hundred years, they'll be they'll be raging up our right way. when our temperatures <laughs> warm up enough so that we're like coastal North Carolina, then we'll see them. Yeah, but yeah. for now, no, we should yeah. not have alligators in our part of the. No. Well, the kids always ask me every time I take kids out into the park, right. and there's water, there's like, are there alligators here? And I'm like, oh. And then you wanted to ask about eels, right? Eels are cool, and they live in, <laughs> in, in, they yeah. live in, our, in, our, in our rivers. This is the thing, too, is like, you know, it's an urban podcast, and, and you know, we definitely want to have an aquatic component, a fish component to it. But what's interesting, though, is like, when you're talking about urban wildlife, yeah. it generally it's like, you're excited because like coyotes have come, are, like, are like in like, abandoned lots and parks and nocturnal yeah. or like 
you know, like... It was peregrine falcons, which are like... Yeah, but... Big but the, birds. Yeah. These water systems aren't, like... Other than, like, the pollution and, like, boat traffic, I mean, they're, they're, they're somewhat natural conditions, way more so than the terrestrial conditions, you know? And it's... In well, this is... A, I, I, I think it's an interesting question to what extent. I mean, because like, we've got... We get into a debate here in Joe's office, but we're like you know you've got channelization of the rivers throughout Philly. We're just talking about how int- certain introduced species change what the native abundances would be, and you've got the the land sort of changing how water runs into the rivers. So it's just like how it's just a live question for opinion. But like, what do you th- how do you think of them? Like, like I go back and forth like with how you're talking about it, or or is it specifically just as modern? No, well, well, no. sorry, we're doing rainstorm. But do you think of the how much does a city make a difference in the rivers? You know, the rivers go through the city. You yeah, know, and while yeah, yeah. And, they're, and they're contiguous. While we're we're talking, you know, generally we're, it's really unique. Oh, we have what's taking a penny pack. It's cool that you have Philly woodpeckers in there because they're in the city, but they're only in this one patch. But like those systems aren't usually they're just, so fragmented, right? But the rivers are contiguous with you know. Yeah, I mean, with you know the the. the Dams have made really fragmented river systems. Uh, not okay. as much here because they're low-head mill dams as compared to, like, hydroelectric dams out west, you know, where there's nothing going. Like here, like in Wissahickon or Pennypack, how many times a year you, the, the dams disappear because you get a big storm, water right. comes up, and, and eels yeah. especially, they have no problems getting around. We find eels in the headwaters of our streams because even if there's a low-head dam and it's kind of wet, they'll kind of crawl out of the water and go find a little trickle and move their way up, and they're at the headwaters of all the streams, and they're sometimes, you know, close to three feet long in, 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 in a trickle. Cool. And that's where they'll spend, you know, a good chunk of their life till they're ready to reproduce. I don't know if you got, they go out to the Sargasso Sea. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the eel kind of, the, the eel migration just blows your mind, yeah. though, the way they, you know, it's not like you, you home in to a river system that you basically smell, you use olfactory senses to make your way back. I mean, they're kind of going out in, in the middle of the sea and finding eels from all over, and then just ocean currents drift them into near, you know, near shore habitats, and, and, yeah. and you know, but, but I, I would say, yeah, aquatic systems are, you know, might remain somewhat more, uh, you know, the there the, the, are like their corridors are still there. You know, like with the Atlantic sturgeon in, in, in the Delaware. Well, we had a pollution block that almost completely wiped them off, and then over harvesting for caviar. But it's like now the water quality comes back, and there's no more commercial harvesting. You're starting to see, you know, Atlantic sturgeon come back. So maybe, maybe the recovery of it would be sooner than in, in a terrestrial system. That once you deforest it, you know, it's really tough to get those intact forests back to provide that habitat or kind of native warm season grass meadows that aren't just mulberry and you know all the invasives coming yeah. up and quickly turning that meadow into kind of that, 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 that forested habitat. I don't want to give the aquatic systems too much of like a, you know because you, you see it you know but, but, but fisheries can thrive in ur- urban settings whereas like you can have that endangered species. I'm not sure on the wildlife end you know we'll see a river otter, we'll see a mink. A beluga whale will come visit. Like I was at a couple years ago, the belugas they were yeah. following the herring run, you know. So there, there's things that will kind of draw them in, but it's it, it it's short lived. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's an interesting question to ponder. Yeah. Well, even like in, in our system, like for the Schuylkill, the, the headwaters were that was acid mine drainage. The water quality, the habit, like like it's it, it's it's more severely degraded outside of the city than it is in the city. 
we find that through our studies in Wissahickon, Pennypack, Cobbs, like our park, like it gets worse in, in suburbia. The, 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 the biotic integrity of those streams, like we have that nice buffer of the park. You know, right. like, like and, and that's the way it is in the Schuylkill. You go up at the headwaters, uh, barely anything could live in that river because of acid mine drainage. So it's like you, you, you kind of have that picture like, hey, we're going to go all the way up in the mountains and, and, and you know, find this pristine river, and, and, and it's not. I mean, you have more species here, you know, the, the, the diversity, the abundance. I mean, it's... it's it might be the neatest thing you've said the whole time. It just blew my mind a little bit, you know. I mean, it makes sense because I've read about, you know, I've read the, like, okay, the biggest, I remember some report I read like 10 years ago that the biggest um, sources of pollution in the school kill are farming and acid mine drainage. Correct. Um, and so when people think like in the city, you know, like that it's, that it's like a, it's an urban dirty river, you know, that it's like crap getting washed in from the sidewalks. Yeah, it happens. But like really, if you want to see what, what makes it, if to the extent that it is dirty, because it's actually, I think it's not that bad a river, but to the extent that it makes it dirty, that it is dirty, it's the stuff coming in from, from the country, you know, it's yeah, not the city. Yeah, yeah, and that's, in our smaller watersheds, it is, like, it, it's that, develop, like, the city's mostly built out. Yeah, there's redevelopment, it's, it's, you're not really seeing land wholesale being cleared. You go in the penny pack just outside of that ecological trust, like, they're, they're still clearing right up to, you know, the, the, the no buffers, you know, yeah. that, that's in legislation now, like, why aren't we leaving the stream buffers? Right. 200 years ago, our forefathers knew enough to make Fairmount Park, I mean, the whole reason, you know, both drives was for drinking water. We yeah. knew back then that that's what we should do, and here we are repeating that mistake. I mean, it's yeah. absurd to me. I mean, it really is. I agree. What's interesting, too, is you bring that up, because, you know, actually, we both, well, you work for the water department directly, I'm a contractor to the water department, so full disclosure, you know, but I do love the water department, what they do in Philly, and it, it, it's amazing the history where the water department basically started the park system by buying every available piece of, of land no, along it's the how waterways. The, I think it's how the Wissahickon became a, and, and a park. Penny Pack and, and, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the whole Fairmont Park proper was preserved that one particular reservoir in the, in the river there and to stop you know, industrial development all along the rivers. But then you get you and me who are Philly boys, born and raised, and you grew up, traveled around with the Hicken, and I grew up, traveled around Pennypack, and we both became biologists, probably directly because of these preserved areas. So yeah, it, it's yeah. interesting that not only is it preserving wildlife, but it's also inspiring young people, you know, to get in, in nature, you know, it's, and it's just a shame that, like, think of ourselves as, you know, we're, we're from the city, and these kids out in the suburbs, you think that they have more, just like we assume that the, the farther you get out from the city, the, the more access to the, the better the river's going to be. But also, a lot of these kids, like you know, other than a big park, like on the outskirts, like it's just like sprawl and sprawl and sprawl, and they probably really don't actually. And you, there's no access to it. Yeah, there's right. no access. Like it's all private access. Like that's a big thing out west too. It's like it's all private. Like you come into, you can pretty much go anywhere on any of the creeks and or rivers. And you can walk there or take the bus or ride your bike. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. like, if yeah. you have to if you have to start somewhere in the suburbs and you're crossing some, like, a bunch of four-lane arterial roads that are that are a bitch to cross without getting killed, and you're just in the culture of driving everywhere and you're 12, you know, like, it's hard to get yourself out there mm -hmm. somewhere. Whereas yeah. if you're, like, we're having a love fest here, I, I, I dig it. <laughs> but, like, but, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's a lot about the perceptions more than anything else. I mean, people... Think of them as maybe scary places, or that, or that they're to the extent that there's trash and stuff down there, dumping whatever else that might keep some people out. But it's yeah, it, it, it even keeps. I think that's a good point because you know a lot of our 
say like resource managers are from like the middle of PA where it's very rural and Philly does scare them like they don't like there's something about it like when you're yeah. like and and it's real like it's <laughs> yeah, you I was, sometimes don't get the yeah. studies you don't get the resources because it's like well you know it's Philly down there and it's it that that either it's that unknown or or there's that perception oh, yeah, and I found you know I found that I identified a, one of my students one of my docent Pointed out a, a, a bird that turned out to be uh, the third record for Townsend's Warbler in Pennsylvania and found that in College Creek Park. And so I, I identified it as, a, as this western vagrant warbler and I alerted my birding friends. And people were like really nervous about coming to visit the park to see this warbler. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, it's a bad area. And I'm like, actually, in the grand scheme of Philadelphia, the neighborhoods right around College Creek are pretty good. And also, it, it, you, know, it, you know, let's be real, let's talk about like race and, and class. We're like, a lot of this neighborhood, this neighborhood right next to the park looks a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in, except the people are a different color. And I'm like, are yeah. you, so are you scared of row houses or are you scared of, of African-American people? You know, mm. either way you're offending me. <laughs> Even though you don't think you are, but you really are, and, yeah. you know? And, and I think there's a lot of things working against Philly. One, people are classist, they are racist, but also, you know, they just don't understand. They don't get it. There's, you know, and, and uh, also I think people write it off like it's a lost cause. And it's a shame yeah. because it's it's not, and it's well. Know. This is why we do Urban Nature podcasts. All right. <laughs> All right. So now now we're recording again. I, I interrupted Tony and Lori reminiscing about a particular sw- swamp white oak tree that our mayor planted, um, and is immortalized. And that was the day I think I met Lori. And it's immortalized on. On that was it the hat for Wild West Philly, or what's it the hat? The for? hat for the Cos Creek environment, the Cos Creek Docent Program. Right. It was a, a common yellow throat and the leaf of a of a salt white oak. We had a yeah. contest for kids to design the, the hat, and they uh, and a kid drew the winner. A kid drew a picture of a bird in a leaf. Yeah. And I took that to an artist, a professional artist, and had it turned into a common yellow throat and a swamp white oak. And the swamp white oak was to. A, it's a tree of the riparian forest. Yep. And, but also, um, our mayor, Mayor Nutter, um, on Earth, they planted uh, that swamp wood oak. But, but what I wanted to touch on is at the end of that conversation with Joe, um, the one thing is a theme that in our discussions, and I think of Lori and Tony's actual work, is exposing urban kids to nature, to put it really broadly. And I think when we think of the environmental movement, it's sort of the the sort of suburbanness, the whiteness of the environmental movement is getting more attention now. Um, but it's something that you come face to face with when you're in when in Philadelphia and working with kids and trying to get them to touch with nature. And we usually frame it in a way of saying, okay, the bigger environmental movement is sort of leaving these communities, these kids behind. And when we're talking to Joe, it sort of hit me that cities have a lot to offer what you know kids who can just on their own go out and experience nature and go out and go fishing or go out and go birding or for me go out and look under some rocks there's easy access there's habitat that in some t- sometimes is as good or better than you'll see in suburban areas and i just wanted to sort of kick it to you to, to think of, to talk about that it's always about where you are because in my neighborhood i grew up in germantown and I wasn't close to the creeks or anything, but there was a field. We yeah. called it the lot. It was near the Kirk and Nice Funeral Home near Germantown in Washington Lane. 
And we did look under rocks. We caught grasshoppers. Right. But we didn't really have a waterway, per se, until yeah. we went down closer to Lincoln Drive, Unitarian Universalist Church there. And uh, there, there was part of the Monashoni <laughs> watershed there. Little did we know, and then that's where we found the crayfish. So it's exposure in your locale, like you mentioned the penny pack. But did you need someone to drive you there? Bikes. Bikes, okay, right. right. Well, so, penny pack, I, I didn't get the penny pack on my own until we moved to Mayfair and I could bike there. Okay. When I lived in Wissanomi until I was 12, there was the Wissanomi Park, which is more like ornamental trees and ball fields, and an abandoned lot where I would catch Brown snakes. I know. Which I named <laughs> what? You named all the brown snakes Billy, I know. It's and Billy Brown. That's <laughs> I get frustrated a little bit by the drive to turn any abandoned space in the city into a vegetable garden. Um, I'm a gardener. I love vegetables. Same here. But. Yes. These abandoned lots in the city are way better served to the ecology of the area by having wildlife habitat than they are in in food gardens. I think of vegetables on the peripheral. I don't think the whole thing should be vegetable yeah. in those rectangular beds. Um, I think it's an old way of thinking in the city because of the history of community gardens. Now yeah. we're urban farmers or whatever the uh, moniker is right now. But yes, we need to let children be exposed to wildlife because most of our kids are afraid of every doggone thing. Yeah, They're afraid of a bee, afraid of a dragonfly. Afraid of the things I look forward to seeing. Uh, but you post on your Facebook page all the time. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I go out of my way to find this stuff, but uh, we're, we just don't need it. I mean, uh, we just don't need that pressure yeah. on the land that is so precious. We really need to look at mixed uses. So if you have a veggie garden here, I don't need one five feet away. We were talking to Joe about, like, what he, how he gets enthused about fish, and you know what we get excited about what we see in Philadelphia. I would say for me, like if I find like a milk snake or a rat snake, which are my two, like I, I spend a lot of time looking for them. Okay. <laughs> um, but I was gonna ask Lori, like you know, what do you, what is, what's this? I think you're being mainly into plants, but you're sort of the omni naturalist. Like, what is it that get that gets you so excited when you find it? Well, I just found a green frog last week. Okay. And I caught it with my hands like noodling a catfish <laughs> on one of the lakes at FDR. And FDR is at uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Park in yes. South Philly, classic yes. park. And it felt almost childlike because I was excited. Because I walked around this part of the lake that I hadn't walked before. I saw two frogs jump into the lake. Yeah. And there was duckweed all over and it's green and yucky, as they say. So I thought, and then I saw these two eyes in the muck. I'm looking at the rings on your hand. I'm looking at your like, nails. Yeah, <laughs> butterflies. <laughs> yes. And so I put the camera in one pocket and the keys in the other. And I stalked it and grabbed it. Nice. And it was a great green frog. The <laughs> biggest that I ever saw. And I caught it. So I was like that kid again, even though yeah. I'm not a kid, but it's that whole experience that I want to share with other people. Yeah. So with everything that's out there, the birds, I did bird filly all winter. 
it was like you were not at the last one, and I was heartbroken. Was that Mount Moriah? Pennypack. Uh, you, you something you? else happened. Lori has been at more of them than I have, <laughs> <laughs> even though I'm the primary leader at them. But I want to say about the lakes, though, FDR Park. To point out, this is a place that you can't. I have gone there on the subway. You can get off the subway and walk, yes. and you're right there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the herons are there. All kinds of cormorants. Everything is there uh, beyond the cowbirds and the red-winged blackbirds. If you <laughs> kind of pick a little spot, I even learned the brown creeper. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, a bird that I might have overlooked without an attention to detail. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm still excited, and I just want somebody else to get it. It took me a while to get it beyond picking up rocks almost every day in Germantown, or the boy next door had a snake and frogs and stuff yeah. that I couldn't have in my house. <laughs> but I, Germantown is a neighborhood in Philadelphia, by the way. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yes. Northwest uh, area. Northwest, particularly, and uh, that's kind of my area of familiarity. I live in West Mount area now. I'm like that girl that never left. So next episode. Alright, so for the the next episode, it's gonna be Tony's long awaited episode about birds. Which is crazy because I'm a bird. I'm like this is my jam. I'm a bird. It's like this is what episode this will be episode six? Six or seven. I, I, yeah, and we finally talk about birds, which is crazy. So we're gonna be Tony in Miami. Trying to top 600 in his... What was it? 600 or 700 in your birds? 600 in my 600 is, I have well over 2,000 birds in my world list. For your American list. Whoa. And then, um, and then also talking, have a good conversation about bird lists, but particularly about how we count, how we value, how we disparage, how we handle exotic introduced species. And so it's something that we're going to see crossover from birds to all kinds of other topics. And, uh, and so I'll say one last time, um, send us your thoughts, your questions, your complaints um, at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com and then like us on Stitcher and iTunes. Maybe give, give us a review. Give us a review uh, so that more people can find us and, and, sh- and spread the love. Give us suggestions for uh, new episodes. And uh, that's about it. Catch fish every day. By the way, what? I tweeted Robert to let him know that we gave him a shout out. Yeah. And that we need to have him as a guest host. And his response was, I love to be guest host. Hashtag herp in the hood. Oh. <laughs> so. We might have to start using that hashtag. <laughs>